Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way. Hi, I'm Mark Bauer. And I'm Brandon Polk. And welcome to episode four of Behind the Scene, a weekly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. For this episode, it's important that we talk about justification, or the excuses that we make when we're confronted with our wrongness. The last three episodes, we talked about why we misunderstand each other, the normative white culture that we find ourselves in, and the anger that resides in the black community from continued inaction on our part. So these conversations have no doubt caused a bit of anxiety and discomfort within you. Our typical reaction when we experience that kind of discomfort is to take it and put it on somebody else. If it wasn't for you, then I wouldn't be feeling this way We've done this going all the way back to original sin, Adam and Eve, when he blamed the woman for giving him the fruit to eat. We become the best defenders of ourselves in those moments to absolve our responsibility to engage in ownership of the issue. And taking ownership is important to moving the conversation forward in a healthy way. I'm thinking of kind of like a bubbling brook, which is really healthy and full of life, compared to a stagnant pond, which is lifeless and kind of gross. When it comes to the racial conversation, our society is really wrestling with who's responsible for what part of a conversation. Both sides, when operating out of a place that is unhealthy, might put too much blame on the other. When we're operating out of a place that is healthy and in pursuit of the truth, we take ownership of our role in that particular conversation. But when we don't take responsibility of it, then sometimes there are horrific consequences. An example of that occurred in Dallas, Texas last year when a police officer shot and killed a teenager at a high school party. And this is interesting for a number of reasons. First, you might say that the officer had unconscious or maybe even conscious biases that he hadn't dealt with. And two, when he was confronted with that wrongness in court, which occurred recently, all kinds of justifications he made for his actions. Now, Brandon, can you talk a little bit about the details of this case and why it's significant? Yeah, sure. I'll definitely talk a little bit the best I can um, about this case, I think. Number one, this is a 15-year-old African-American male by the name of Jordan Edwards living uh, around Dallas, Texas area. He found himself in a house party and turns out that the officer, his name was Roy Oliver, um, he ended up firing into uh, a vehicle where Jordan was in the passenger seat with a rifle and as reports say that the bullet pierced through the passenger side and then Jordan was shot and subsequently killed. So what happened recently, just this week, is that, just last week, is that Roy Roy Oliver was convicted of murder in the first degree and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. So a couple of things I think that are really important to say here. One is that it's very rare for police officers to be convicted let me offer some statistics. We'll be referencing this article from Vox um, for just a few more minutes, um, where it's quoted this. If police are, are charged, they're very rarely convicted. The National Police Misconduct Reporting Project analyzed 3,238 criminal cases against police officers from April 2009 through December 2010, and they found that only 33% were convicted. And only 36% of officers who were who were convicted ended up serving prison sentences. Both of those are about half the rate at which members of the public are convicted or incarcerated. 
What I think is really interesting here is that this case in the media is um, around the time, you know, we're talking about other police um, shootings and police officers going to trial for their alleged roles in those um, cases where people have lost lives, uh, Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, and the list goes on. I think what was really unique about this case is that a jury coming up against all of the cultural pressure to support police officers and to take on the um, uh, what it means to define reasonable doubt as um, as it would seem um, is always the main wrestling point when it comes to police officers and their justification or their understanding of why they would be allowed or why it was appropriate for them to fire in this case like Roy Oliver did. But uh, what one of the prosecutors said about the teenager, Jordan Edwards, was this. And I quote, It's not a fairy tale. He really was that great. He really did have a 3.5 GPA. He really did want to go to Alabama to play football for them. He really did work out every day. He really did have a million friends. And he really did have a nickname, Smiley. He was the real deal. Interesting, I think, that I think what we tend to do is look at a situation like Jordan and a house party and go, he was someplace he wasn't supposed to be. So a teenage kid at a house party, and of course, his behavior was suspect and worth suspicion. Let me say that Roy, Roy Oliver testified this. He said that he had no choice but to open fire. He says that the teen's car was moving towards his partner. His partner, Tyler Gross, who's his former partner, testified that he did not believe he was in any danger at the time. The Associated Press states that a prosecutor had referred to Oliver as being trigger-happy. During the, the trial, um, one prosecutor also noted um, that only nine seconds passed between the time Oliver drew his weapon and the time that he opened fire on the car where Jordan was in the passenger seat. So see the, 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 the differences in how we're defending both of these perspectives. Jordan, a teenager at a house party, 15 years old, maybe it was a decent house party. Who's to say? I wasn't really there. Um, if I was there, I, I'm probably thinking about things that I was doing when I was a teenager. Um, I was probably at a house party and um, maybe I had the thought that I would be shot and killed if something something happened. Maybe I thought I'd get arrested if something bad happened. I don't know. I don't know if a 15-year-old kid going to a house party thinks, okay, let me be really um, aware the cops might show up and then I might die in the passenger seat because a cop takes a rifle and shoots the gun. Um, and then there's Roy Oliver, you know, who defends himself and says, uh, I had every right to defend myself. I felt like I was in harm, in harm's way. And turns out, at least that a jury decided that that was not true. So what is it in Roy Oliver that uh, put him in a place where he felt like he had to so radically defend him, his, his position, um, even if that position um, was untrue, um, in fact, false? Um, what, what does that mean um, for America today, <laughs> that our police officers are willing to do that, perhaps? And I think that with this conviction, I... 
I think it sends an incredible message um, that uh, maybe we're turning the tide in terms of our, in terms of our public consciousness on these issues. Um, and yet it still says, uh, I think that we still have a far way to go. <laughs> um, 15 years, um, a 15 year sentence for murder in the first degree. If that were my child, I'm not so sure how I would feel about that. So um, yeah, so I think there are a lot of different ways we can take this. Um, uh, I have a lot of questions about the case. Um, I'm overjoyed that um, that we were able to uh, see this conviction um, in America, and uh, and I would encourage everyone to go look it up on Google and YouTube and watch um, Jordan's mother um, giving her response um, during the actual court hearing um, around um, not just what her emotions are around losing her son but what she feels like it means in terms of justice for the other victims um, of police brutality. Um, uh, she feels like that this case has, has been a win for all of them, so. Yeah, and this case is significant for all those things you just outlined. Uh, it's rare to get a police conviction, especially when it comes to, um, you know, use of force, uh, lethal force. And uh, and there's a number like it, it's a complex issue because one thing I've been fa fascinated by is when we're bringing these cases against police officers, these are the same police officers who are expected to work hand in hand with these prosecutors every other day to prosecute other cases. And so uh, there are some um, municipalities who are doing things to to take that equation out of out of it and so I think in New York there's a special prosecution unit that is involved whenever there's a, a use of force issue in involving a police officer where they bring in other prosecutors who wouldn't have normally worked with these police officers right because that's an interesting dynamic that occurs that well you know you have to prop bring this case against this police officer and then this police officer has friends in, in the uh, in the department and these this officer has friends you've probably worked with prosecuting other cases so that in itself is pretty significant and the fact uh, that this also happened back in Dallas where I'm from is, is really interesting and that's a, a black woman DA and I don't know if that had anything to do with it but she's new and everything that I've heard about her she's she's really great um, she wasn't the one who prosecuted prosecuted this case necessarily but it did come out of her office so uh, there's a lot of dynamics that are occurring there and Brandon you mentioned that one of the things that we do when there's a use of force is the police officer is trying to justify his actions himself but then when we get into the conversation of, okay, Black Lives Matter, we police shouldn't be killing people on the streets like this. As a third party observer, what we kind of do, and especially if you're white, is we kind of make justifications ourselves. So like if a police officer kills someone, like Eric Gardner I'm thinking of, um, when they choked him out on the sidewalk, you're like, well, what were you doing that led you to have this police encounter in the first place? Eric Gardner is selling cigarettes and they warned him plenty of times not to do that and he's doing excuse me, doing it anyway. And then the list goes on and on. People are running. They shouldn't be running. They shouldn't have been caught up in these situations. But one thing I always want to remind people of is that shouldn't result in a death sentence. You know, uh, there's proper avenues that we can go through to prosecute these cases if there really is wrongdoing and there's there's a reason for that. But when a police officer shoots someone, they're taking all that out of the system's hands that was created so that we could, um, you know, we could walk through those things and make sure that all our eyes are dotted, our T's are crossed, and uh, to take away any abuse of power. And so when you take someone's life, you're taking that out of the hands of the system that we've put in place to pursue those things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And, um, you know, I, I, I know that's hard for some people to hear, um, 
Mark, what you just said was really interesting. You know, like, you know, when a police officer shoots someone who's running away, and in this case, someone who is going away from you, who is African-American and a child, you are taking the due process that is aligned in, the, in our system's government or, or in our government system to actually um, uh, be able to discern what the just, um, uh, just and, and appropriate consequence is for others' behavior. And that that, um, that power dynamic between police officers and civilians is something that um, has become highly suspect at this point. We don't trust it as much as we used to. And um, maybe across the board, maybe across America entirely, you know, whether you're black or brown or white or green or yellow, maybe you're a little bit more suspect than you typically would be because of the way the media has been around these cases. But I think that's a very interesting um, thought and a very compelling um, truth is, um, you know, what power do we give um, uh, people that are in authority to protect us to then also defend themselves against us, against an, a legitimate accusation? And, um, you know, if we are to personalize that, you know, um, whether you're a white person looking at the Black Lives Matter movement or and we've referenced, you know, the, um, the Baltimore riots or the riots in Ferguson, um, if you're a white person looking at that, you know, what are the justifications? You know, what are the reasons that you give yourself um, in order to say, well, you know what, maybe they had a reason, you know, for shooting Michael Brown. You know, maybe they had a reason for shooting Philando Castile. Maybe there was a, um, a, a, a real reason, you know, why that person had to die as opposed to the other um, uh, types of decisions on the spectrum of decisions that could have been made um, other than the most extreme one, um, I think if you're African American, and I think that we're dealing with this, um, uh, or, or, or if you're, you're black or brown, you're dealing with this in in a different way. And um, I think culturally, you know, we're looking at looking uh, at white people and saying, "Well, this is all your fault too," and not able to always discern what our responsibilities are, what our potential for growth is and maturity. And um, and that's not to deny that there are these systems of um, of like continued oppression, you know, that are um, messing with us still holistically. But um, but don't we have some things that we can do in light of that as well to be a part of the love story that's being told um, in the name of human dignity? And I, and I think that that's part of our history. It's part of my culture. It's part of my upbringing is that um, regardless of what was going on, there was an attitude of being able to rise above all of these things, to rise above the oppression, to rise above hatred and to still show love for the oppressor. And um, how do we do that? And so I, I think we've got two challenges going on here from two different frames of reference. You know, if you're black or brown, and then if you are white, um, uh, what are we justifying? Um, what are we uh, passing off? <laughs> what, what are we denying um, or um, kind of abdicating our own responsibility in, in, in taking on at this juncture of the culture? Yeah, and going back to kind of what excuses are we making for oh well they shouldn't have had that police interaction in the first place or uh you mentioned a spectrum of decisions like there's always a spectrum of decisions that we can make and sure like i can think of examples too in high school and i've used some examples before in the past three episodes and maybe the picture that you guys are getting of me isn't really a you know a holistic or healthy one but i sound a little deviant um in some of these stories but I can think of specifically three interactions, and I'm not, I, was, I didn't get in trouble when I was in high school. I was really actually a pretty good kid, never been in trouble with the law, 
Um, and I can think of three times where I've had a police interaction where I was legitimately running away from the situation. A couple of house parties. There was a bridge nearby where I grew up, and we were jumping off the bridge into the lake. Uh, the police rolled up, put on his lights, and then I tried to sneak away stealthily. I'm, like, <laughs> dripping wet and uh, in this tall grass. I was an idiot. Um, but in, in any of those moments, I would never, it would have never crossed my mind that I was in danger of being shot. Like that just, it never even crossed my yeah, mind. It doesn't and, cross your mind. And it's pretty unbelievable that, um, you know, that, that we think that that is a, a correct course of action, a correct decision to, to gun down some of these people. And, and Jordan Edwards is significant. The reason the prosecutor mentioned that is because this really was a good kid and we didn't have any excuse for him for that police interaction, except he was just at a house party, police roll up and then you're, you're running away. So, uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I think to, just to say that, I think that's really, you know, cool. I mean, Mark, you say it like, you know, you weren't afraid and never entered into your mind. And I, I did make a comment as, as, as we were talking earlier about, you know, how, you know, when I was growing up, I was such a good kid, you know, I had a, a 4.2 weighted GPA and I was an overachiever. And I thought to myself, man, I will never find myself at a house party because I think something could happen, you know? And, uh, I don't know if I ever thought that I would get shot, <laughs> you know, um, just as a black person, that just didn't, that still didn't enter into my mind. I felt like I was pretty sheltered from that, but there were circumstances in which I didn't know. I mean, I had peers that did experience that. And, uh, um, you know, you'd hear some wild party, you know, or something going on, you know, with some of the teenagers and then, um, the police showed up and then someone did end up getting shot, you know? And, um, and I, you know, I don't remember anyone dying. I do remember these incidents, you know, where the, where, uh, there was some like a, some kind of engagement with law enforcement and it didn't turn out great. And um, so, but I don't remember any of that happening in the context of a mostly white house party, you know, someone in, um, and we, we were making this um, like comparison earlier. I said, you know, if this is a uh, Jordan Edwards, you know, and he's, um, you know, at a house party, let's just say it's, it's uh, in a black neighborhood and uh, with mostly black or brown people, then the perception of that party perhaps is different you know, um, for a white police officer than if he were in Laguna Beach or in Orange County in an affluent neighborhood and it's a 16-year-old white kid throwing a house party. You know, like his reaction to that situation is going to be different, um, at least allegedly. And if someone doesn't believe that, I think, we, <laughs> you know, I, I think we have a lot to comb through here. At least that's my perspective of, of in terms of bias, you know, in terms of those differences, you know. And um, so, you know, what what is it that's sort of causing us on the spectrum of decision making to to, to, to even come to, to the conclusion, you know, that if I'm living in Orange County, I don't have to worry about it. You know, um, if I'm living in Baltimore, I have to worry about it. And um, what are we going to do in order to engage that conversation at a level that reduces the bias, that reduces these incidents? And uh, and I think we can do that. But I think, of course, it starts at home in the heart of the person. And, and, um, and every person has a part to play in that conversation. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And talking about the, the white part to play in that conversation, this case had a system set up, you know, the court system, the prosecution, the defense attorney, the judge, the jury, they all played a role in bringing justice to this, you know, because uh, Roy Oliver, he was bringing up all kinds of defenses. He felt like his life was in danger. And then when the jury heard that, when they came time to make a charge, they're like, you know, no, not really. And so in the confines of this conversation that we're having, the race dialogue with each other, we don't really, we don't have that system set up in place. And so it's kind of incumbent on us maybe the media maybe we're trying to broker the conversation here in this in this podcast uh, but there are some things that we we do with our discomfort and we kind of just absolve our responsibility with that so some of those things some of the way that plays out 
and we've talked about this in, in some of the other episodes is personal responsibility you know black people if you just took responsibility for yourselves uh you went to college if you educated yourselves or uh if you just stopped getting in trouble and having these interactions with police if you just stopped setting fire to cars in your community and riding and blah 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 then you would be in a better position to to elevate um you know your your flourishing in the society so that's that's one way that that plays out um and those are things that you know have unfortunately come across my own lips and i hear friends say that all the time if if only you would just take personal responsibility so what might be a healthy outlet for people to when when they experience this discomfort is to do the personal work the personal introspection that says okay what is my part in this story and and not in a way that produces shame because i think that that's an indicator that you're not doing it right if you feel shame then, uh, then that's a no, no go zone. I don't think you should be operating out of shame. Uh, white guilt, I think, is an indicator that um, that you've been probably heaped up too much responsibility on onto the conversation. And so, if you're operating in any of those areas, then um, probably revisit your part in the story, uh, because you know we we talked about how we didn't. It, it wasn't me. I wasn't the one lash, giving lashings. I wasn't the one who owned slaves. Pe- slaves. People who look like me owned slaves. People who look like me created this uh, the social construct that benefited people who look like me economically, and that's what we talked about whiteness. That's what that is. Um, but what 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 do I do with this, Brandon? And your background is kind of in social work and counseling. What are some of the tools that I can use that we can use to to kind of push through that and do that introspective work? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I think we can pick and choose which issues we want to get involved in here as 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 we choose you know we choose the ones that we um that are close enough to us but not so close that we feel like we are um really culpable you know um you know something that comes to mind you know i know that people are really impassioned about the environment you know and um let's just say you know you're a 10 year old kid you know you hear some you know you get some education on what's going on in the environment and you become an environmentalist or a person of protest you know and and believe about sort of reducing our carbon footprint and things like that there's some really passionate people out there you know that take on they do certain things with their lives you know they make sure they recycle they make sure they limit their trash they use um you know um, glasses and not plastic you know there are certain decisions that they make but are they responsible for the environmental changes going on would they ever say that they're responsible for it in terms of how it began or 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 who's responsible for it you know like you know so what is what is their responsibility to engage the conversation are on 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 climate change in a practical way from a personal level but also at a at a more holistic um, uh, way of talking about things and engaging these conversations with other people um, they don't come into it thinking it was all my fault they come into it with a social responsibility based upon what's going on in the present and I think that that is where we are moving in this conversation. If, if, if you are white, um, I have heard this so often because I have so many white friends um, who I have this conversation with. Um, and uh, the one thing I heard, you know, or, 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 or that I constantly hear is what, um, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to give away my house? Am I supposed to give away my land if you don't feel um, that as a black person you've gotten your due? Um, are you saying that it's my fault that you don't have what you need, that you don't have the resources that you need? 
uh, that you need. And, um, you know, I think we're, we're well beyond that in this conversation. It's been so many years. I'm not looking for, for the promised 40 acres and a mule from the government, you know, that Lincoln told me I was going to get. Like, I'm not, I'm not looking for that. Um, what I am saying is this. You are living in an environment that you were not personally there for the construction of, but you are benefiting from that environment. And how you've benefited from that environment also means that you have resources to address the carbon footprint of how this conversation continues. Um, I don't think that's deniable, but I know that's hard. Um, I feel like it's hard. Um, as a black person telling that to a white person, I'm asking you to engage. Um, I'm asking you to engage in a way where you don't feel ashamed and where you don't really feel guilty. I'm asking you to engage in a way that brings you to a place of emotional elevation and intelligence um, around the, um, the value for human dignity, um, the value for history, the uh, value for synthesizing those two things together in terms of your personal service. And that work, as Mark said, starts on the inside. And if you are not um, able to enter into that uh, um, as an invitation, that's an invitation from me, as an invitation from a higher um, from a higher power to become more integrated, um, to say, you know what, I wasn't there. I didn't own slaves. My family didn't even own slaves, perhaps, for, for many of you. But what I can do is I can look at the environment and say that I want to be a part of reducing the carbon footprint of racism here. I want to be a part of a movement that reduces the carbon footprint of like discrimination and the expression of bias in a culture or throughout my own life. I want to become a part of the change. I want to become a part of the narrative. I'm going to put myself in that story. And the great thing about it, because we live in a fantastic world, and more importantly, we live in a, in a fantastic country, if you're listening in, in America today, is that we have the option to engage or not. So there's nothing that we can mandate. I can't mandate you to open up your heart and open up your mind in a new way. I can't mandate you to be challenged, but I can ask you to be in relationship. And I think that's one of the reasons, if not the reason why we started this podcast, was to engage the conversation in a way that was so compelling that it would cause us to think differently about our own behaviors and how we engage. Um, so in terms of some practicals, you know, number one thing I say as a therapist is go get therapy. I mean, that's number one, you know, just um, uh, anger, um, you know, towards, um, uh, you know, um, black people in the context of Black Lives Matter, for example, you know, um, most of that animus, you know, is probably not coming from the movement. It's probably coming from somewhere on the inside of you. Um, it's coming from your history, um, your family history, your relationship history. Um, uh, some of the accusation that I oftentimes hear, you know, is about um, like affirmative action, you know, and, and why should the government um, uh, mandate that, 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 that these spaces, that public spaces and government spaces and even education spaces make room for people of different colors um, in order to diversify it. If there's someone that's more qualified, perhaps, um, in a job, you know, then why would we, um, uh, and, and, and if that person happens to be white, do, do they lose their job to a black person or to a brown person? And um, I, I think having a, a deeper type of conversation around why that bothers people <laughs> around why that bothers you um, is uh, uh, can be a very compelling one, but it's hard to work that out on a podcast and you need to work that out in a therapy chair because um, the fact of the matter is that it's not about giving someone who's less qualified 
an opportunity. It's about giving someone who's as qualified or more qualified an opportunity who would not have otherwise gotten that opportunity because of the color of their skin. No one wants someone, I don't want someone as a black person to have a job or to have an opportunity that they're not qualified to have regardless of the color of their skin. Um, so, um, but that's just an example that comes to mind. But so yeah, get, get some therapy. That's number one. I know I do. So Mark, yeah. Mark, yeah. Mark no. wants some therapy too. I've, I've, yeah. Um. <laughs> I've, I've talked about it at our launch party. I've been talked about how, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the things that I thought of for this podcast in the first place came out of my own therapy and how I saw that those tools that I was learning, um, in the context of a relationship with, uh, someone that I was in with at the time could be applied on a macro level to this conversation because it's you know you tease it out and the same feelings that, that I feel in relationship with someone else is the same that I feel in a broader context when it comes to this conversation and the same things the same discomfort anxieties that I'm feeling about my unhappiness I was putting on the other person and that other person was putting on me and so we kind of once you one of the things that you learn in therapy is that you know you do your own work and suddenly uh, the the problems, the list of grievances that you had against the other person are minimized. They suddenly become unimportant, and th- or less important. You know, certainly there were legitimate grievances that she had against me and that I had against her, but that list became so much smaller once we individually started doing our own work. And Brandon, you talked about kind of elevating and anchoring something to a higher power. And for us, that was you know this relationship is important. It's bigger than you and me individually. And so we are willing to put in that work. And in the context of America, I think that we can flourish so much better. One, just as individual people, if we're doing this work that we kind of tend to put off. I don't know if it's an American society thing or if it's just human nature overall. We kind of tend to run from doing that introspection because it kind of signals that we are imperfect. It kind of uh, highlights, uh, puts a spotlight on our own brokenness, and we don't like to do that. You know, we, we kind of like to think that we are good people, but a good, healthy I talked about a bubbling brook earlier. Uh, if you're stagnant, you're unhealthy, you're not very full of life. But if you're doing this introspective work, it's going to lead to more human flourishing. Owning your part of the story, owning your brokenness is just part of uh, a life that brings mm-hmm. so much more happiness because your happiness isn't um, dictated by circumstances and other people. Uh, it's, it's something that comes out of your own out of you, I guess, out of yourself, right? Yeah, sure, sure. And and this is not like you know this conversation around you know getting therapy, sitting in a counselor's chair. You know, it's great. I think I think a lot of people you know will need that. Um, you know, a lot of people just need to build their friendships and build their relationships. You know, as a you know we talk a lot in the therapeutic world about how you know mostly your friendships are the therapeutic connections that you need. You know, um, uh, you know I had a, a grandparent. You know, they would tell me things. You know, like show me your friends, I'll show you your future. <laughs> you know, and um, and I think that means a lot in terms of um, being able to work out some of our conscious and unconscious bias. You know, and um, and I'll also just just say this. Uh, you know, I have clients, uh, uh, white, black, and brown, you know, who come to me with a fair amount of um, connection to the issue of race um, and race relations in this country. This is how they get to me is because they have an like an anger <laughs> um, that they're working through, either an anger at sort of the uh, quote-unquote white um, system, you know, um, or anger in the other direction, you know, where you have people that are white, you know, who are dealing with um, 
um, the sense of, um, of like oppression that they're feeling, you know, from, you know, black or brown people and um, movements, you know, that are speaking not so kindly against, you know, these oppressive systems, you know, because they think it's actually talking about them. So, um, so I work with both. And what always comes out of it, always comes out of it, out of that expression of anger, is a, um, a disconnection with what's going on in themselves personally, um, why they feel the need to defend their position and to defend their, um, their posture um, or the decisions that they're making and their opinions and how they communicate. Um, um, all of that comes, you know, from a place of pain, of, of significant pain going on in the person. And um, sometimes that comes from parents, comes from childhood in some ways. It comes from um, relationships that you've had, you know, and consistency in those relationships. Sometimes um, things that happen over and over again, you know, um, that, that cause a way of thinking, you know. And, um, you know, what I think that the... Uh, uh, that our culture is desperately in need of at this point is sort of like a, 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 a social um, uh, way of looking at how we um, are feeling and thinking and then behaving. And, and that, we, uh, you know, is, is a therapeutic thing of, of, of really how to look at how to change behavior and do behavior modification. And if that's really what, what our goal is here, then we have to start with what we think about people, what we think about ourselves. And what we feel about ourselves, what we feel about people, what we feel about circumstances, we feel about communities. And then our feelings will always lead us to behaviors. And um, take this police officer, Roy, um, you know, what is it that he was thinking about the world? What was his doctrine of self? What was his doctrine of the world? And then what did he feel about it? What did he feel about himself? It was all a reporting about himself. I felt unsafe. I felt unsafe. And I had a duty to then what? Defend himself that led to his behavior, if you see what I'm saying. Um, so what is it then that we, that we need to change about the way we think and feel in order to change our behavior? Yeah. And this is all, this is, I feel like a lot that, you know, we're, when it comes to like, we're just skimming the surface of this and I kind of want to put a, not a bow on it. Cause we're, we still have a few minutes here to talk about it, but one of the things I guess, contextualize it and, and try to, try to rehash where we find ourselves. So one of the things that we, we just haven't done as white people or in the context of the race conversation is we haven't even dealt with the bias. We see it in the news. We see these conversations taking place. We see these accusations of racism makes us uncomfortable. And so we try to deflect responsibility. And so we say, well, that wasn't me. Um, I didn't have any part of that. So I don't have to engage. And so we kind of shift the field goals a little bit, right? Or the goal line, um, and we're constantly moving that. And so then we, when we say, well, okay, you, you weren't there. It wasn't you who owned slaves specifically, but you exist in this society that has benefited from it. And so what is the reason that compels us to, to be confronted with this brokenness? And, and for me, I, it was kind of a realization that I didn't choose the time or the place that I was born into and where my successes have occurred in my career have all been from something that I was exposed to and introduced to. People took the time to pour into my life and they, and these people were in my life in the first place because of just where I was in the universe. I, wasn't, I didn't choose when or where I was deposited here. You know, my parents uh, maybe barely decided that, right? Like that was something. And then even their meeting was, uh, was something that they couldn't control. So we find ourselves in this universe where we don't have any control about anything that we bring to it. 
you know, certainly we have things that are available to us and it's uh, up to us to choose what we do with those things. But there, if you think about how your success came about, it wasn't completely on your own. And so when there are people who are born into this universe with kind of a, the, the things without access to the things that you were, I think that there is kind of it is kind of incumbent on us if you want to get theological about it to be the distributors of equity in the universe and i think that if you are blessed you know we don't have to use the word privilege if you can use the word blessed if you are blessed to have these resources um, available to you uh, distribute those and and provide access to things to people who wouldn't have traditionally had access to them and expose them to those things and then give them the tools and see what they do with it yeah definitely um yeah we we, we have a lot of growth <laughs> you know but i think that we are um at the point of just beginning you know and um and that's positive and that's hopeful um you know the the things that we can't control are just that they're just things that we can't control and personally um what i know i can control is the love I have in my heart, um, the confrontation I give myself when I'm not operating in that love, when I'm feeling frustration, what do I call it? When I'm feeling frustrated, when, when I'm feeling frustrated, do I call it something outside of myself? You know, do I say, Mark, it's your fault <laughs> um, that I'm frustrated? Um, or do I take the time to not take the easy way out and to actually ask myself questions, you know? Um, and um, I think, uh, you know, if I'm going to reference, you know, this this case one last time, I think that the district attorney's office, you know, in that place, you know, there, this decision you know, to prosecute this officer was not an easy one, and it wasn't a popular one. Um, but what's going on in that office that someone was willing to take that chance and to take that risk? And I think that it starts with a person um, who decides that they're going to ask questions about who they are, about um, what their values are, what their principles are and then to engage in a way that is different, even if it's unpopular. And I think that's the call um, that we all have to answer is a call to identity, a call to um, character and character development to say, just because I didn't there, just because I wasn't there, because I didn't do anything, because um, I didn't commit a crime, <laughs> because I didn't hold slaves or because I didn't express bias, um, because I didn't exercise racism or discrimination in my own life, does that mean that there aren't sins of omission? Does that mean that there are not sins um, that are based on what I do not do, sins that are based in inaction? Um, that if there's something to be done, something that should be done, why do I pass the buck to someone else to do it when there's enough room, there's enough injustice in the world for me to get involved, for each one of us to get engaged? So I think that's the calling right now. So um, what are the next steps for us? What are the next steps for me? Um, I'm going to continue talking about it. I'm going to continue asking questions about myself. Um, you know, uh, what am I deflecting on other people? Um, uh, what part of this racial um, talking about relations and reconciliation, how, how much of that do I need to grow into myself, you know, in terms of how to bring people of all races together to the table, but in a way that's equitable for, for the oppressed, in a way that's equitable for the disenfranchised and I think that's hard and it's complicated, but I think if we personalize it and decide we're going to do something um, every day with our lives, you know, I think that there are a hundred thousand decisions, you know, that we can make every day, um, if not more, 
uh, for the cause of justice in the world and for the sake of human dignity uh, right in front of us. So um, if you guys are ready about that and all about that, I think um, I think this conversation has been a good one. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to, to continue engaging this conversation. Uh, one thing that I just thought of too is, Brandon, you mentioned at the launch party, the story of the Good Samaritan, and there's lots of different things that you can take out of that story. Uh, one was the Samaritan, you know, wasn't viewed as someone who was uh, had very had a very good status in that existing society, right? Like he passed by this person who needed help, but it was this person who you kind of looked down on, who was the actual one who dispensed justice and helped this person. Um, all those other fools who passed by this person who needed help, um, what were the excuses that they were making? Was it, oh, I didn't beat that man, or I wasn't the one who caused him to do this, or maybe he deserved a good beating and that's why he kind of finds himself in this place. What we have to do is we have to see that regardless of the circumstances that led us to this moment, we have an opportunity to make a decision on what we do with it. And I think that if you want to talk about personal responsibility, then it's right in front of you. And that's where we can have access. We can kind of take inventory of, well, what's right in front of me right now? And if there isn't anything in front of you right now, Brandon, you mentioned in the past episode, then where are you living? Are you kind of inoculating yourself from opportunities to shine light in darkness? And you know, that's something that I uh, am continuing to look for ways in my own life, um, investing in some nonprofits monetarily uh, and also giving up my time, maybe doing some mentoring with some young men who uh, might not have some good male figures to look up to. Um, and so that's what you should. I think if, if you take away anything, look at yourself. What is that discomfort? What is it signaling to you? Because it's signaling something and you don't have to have it doesn't have to be good or bad. Just look at the signals that are being told to you and kind of deconstruct what it is that you think that it, it is telling you shame what is that telling you resentment what is that telling you anger yeah and the like. yeah i i think that's totally right and um i think that my final encouragement here too is that if uh if you're hearing this and you're like you know i i i'm just not there and i just wasn't there and it's not my responsibility to to to, to really do anything um I think that my like encouragement is this like you really don't need to defend it anymore you just don't need to like i love you <laughs> we all love you and if people don't love you don't express love for you and and um then that's on them but uh you don't have to defend anymore we don't have to defend anymore i think it's more important that we stop defending and start doing something good and um and that we start listening and then we take what we hear and consider for a moment, this is the courageous part, you have to consider for a moment that you just might be wrong on some things in terms of how you've seen it, in terms of how you've believed it, in terms of, um, uh, you know, your maybe it's an upbringing uh, thing, you know, uh, maybe it's something else, maybe it's politics, whatever it is, but I think it's important if we're going to grow as individuals, grow as people, we have to come to a place where we understand we do not own the market of education or of our perspective on any given subject. And if you're not open to being wrong, then you're not open to being elevated. If you're not open to being wrong, you're not open to being honest. If you're not open to being wrong, then you're not open to helping um, in a way that is really helpful and beneficial for, for those people, for, for those entities, for those communities. So. If you're concerned about helping, you're concerned about doing good, then this conversation is definitely for you. 
but I'd say don't worry about being defensive anymore. Know that there's enough love to go around. Um, and unfortunately, there's enough hate to go around too, but love will always win. And, um, and if that's where you want to be and that's where we want to be, then I say we do that together and we grow together in that direction. Yeah, I think that's great. That, and I, that actually kind of segues into what uh, I hope we haven't nailed down specifically what we'll talk about in the next episode, but this could probably be it is how do you flex that fear? Because this is, you might call it fear, you might call it anxiety, you might call it shame, guilt, whatever. And that resides in you, kind of feels the same like fear and that it all has this feeling and you know it when you feel it if you get scared your body is sending you all kinds of signals releasing all kinds of chemicals and telling your brain things fight or flight we all kind of know those things and if you're not used to exercising that fear if you're not used to doing that and stepping into your discomfort and it doesn't have to be the race conversation it doesn't even have to be about dispensing justice it could just be about experiencing new things then that's kind of a stagnant unhealthy area where you're not growing and so maybe the next episode we just talk about this is the science of fear and stepping into it and this is what it can produce this is how it produces growth because our initial reaction is to run with it run away from it because we're afraid of it but if you step into it it's amazing how that fear disappears right yeah that's so, great that's awesome anyway uh that's all we got today thanks for sticking around and hanging out with us i think this Bye was a yeah a difficult conversation but uh but we're eager to to get into it next week Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, and then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then, of course, if you think you had know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.